Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. But just in case he was wrong, he tried an experiment. For a whole week, he kept track of all his judgments about other people. Here's what he discovered. He writes, judging others is fun. Judging others makes you feel good. And I'm not sure I've gone a single day without that sin. In any given week, I might condemn my son numerous times for a messy room, judge my daughter for being moody, which especially bothers me when I'm being moody, but of course I have a good reason. Now some of you may be thinking, wait, are you saying that correcting my kids for a messy room is judging? No, but there's correction that values with mercy, and there's correction that devalues with judgment. I get in my car and and drive and find a host of inept drivers who should have flunked their driving test. And so I throw in a little condemnation on our Department of Public Safety for good measure. At the store, I complain to myself about the lack of organization that makes it impossible to find what I'm looking for, all the while being tortured with terrible music. Who picks that music anyway? I stand in the shortest line, which I judge is way too long because... Look, people, it says 10 items or less, and I count more than that in three of your baskets. What's wrong with you people? And why can't that teenage checkout girl, wait, what is she wearing? Come on, girl, focus and work so we can get out of here. He finishes by saying, judging is our favorite pastime if we are honest, but we are not. We're great at judging the world around us by standards that we would highly resent being held to. Judging makes us feel good because it puts us in a better light than other people. Why did he do that day? He judged only according to appearances. Now, I want us all to be judgmental people, but only in the biblical way. That will be the biggest portion of what we will be looking at today. Look at verse 21 with me. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses should not be broken, why are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? To continue his earlier argument from last week, Jesus appealed to the specific precedent of Moses, who was the human author of divine law, circumcision, which was their most treasured right, and the Sabbath, which was the institution that had been perverted by man-made tradition. Why are you angry with me? Why are you out to kill me? Because I healed a man on the Sabbath day? Yet you allow circumcision on the Sabbath. Indeed they did. And they still do. You see, according to Genesis 17, eight days after birth, Jewish boys were marked through the cutting away of the flesh as those who had a covenant relationship with God. This meant that some part of the man-made Sabbath traditions would have to be broken. But here's Jesus, our wonderful, radical Savior, saying, Does it really make sense that you circumcise on the Sabbath but won't let me heal on the Sabbath? If the right of circumcision could override the Sabbath rules, why wouldn't the miraculous, God-orchestrated healing of a desperately infirm man? 
And so his argument here is brilliant. He says, you're not upset when someone causes pain on the Sabbath, when something is taken away on the Sabbath, when there's a cry of anguish on the Sabbath. But because there was a cry of joy on the Sabbath, because I restored health on the Sabbath, you're upset. Isn't that typical of religion? Religion says you better not be happy. If you're spiritual, you should be miserable. If any of you look forward to coming to church on Sunday, shame on you. That's religiosity. It's the way of the law, and it's painful, heavy, and miserable. Now, I've known some miserable Christians who are so steeped in religion instead of a relationship that if I were unsaved, and I thought that being a Christian meant becoming like them, I would be tempted to just stay a pagan and hope that if reincarnation was true, I wouldn't come back as a grub worm. If a person has been redeemed from the clutches of sin, I think that person should live their lives in such a way that others may want to follow them out of darkness and into the light. In Titus 2.10, in speaking of bondservants, they are told to live their lives in such a way that they would adorn the doctrine of God. Or some translations say to make the teachings of God attractive. What does that mean and how do we do it? The word adorn is cosmeo, from which we get the word cosmetics. It literally means to bring order out of chaos. That's what cosmetics do. You ladies know this. I'm not knocking it. Us men are just stuck with the faces that we're born with. At least you women can do something about it. But here's the point. It doesn't just magically happen. You just don't wake up with many breath, your hair fixed, and your face painted. No, you have to apply yourself for those things to occur. And then you're even more attractive than you, have, than you are already. I need to be very careful here. Some of you ladies cook for me sometimes. But the same principle is true for all of us men and women alike. If we want to make the teachings of God attractive, we need to take the time and apply his word into our lives. The difference is, instead of just being attractive on the outside, we are even more lovely on the inside, and that can give us a platform into which to share our faith. Look at verse 24 with me. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. These people were judging only according to appearances. It would be the same today as someone who always shows up on Sundays, they genuflect in the aisles, and they finger the rosary beads. They recite all the creeds of the church, not because it's expressing their love, but as a means of appropriating heaven. They are not responses to grace, but moral rungs they are climbing in the hopes of attaining heaven. Now the seminal teaching on judging is Matthew chapter 7, which in my mind is one of the most misquoted, misapplied, and misunderstood passages in the entirety of scripture. I'll read it to you and then we'll unpack it. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice the first verse. Jesus has just said what is music to the ears of our modern culture. Don't judge others. Don't condemn. Don't ever tell anyone what they are doing is wrong. But what was he really saying? Usually when you hear this verse quoted, it is in the context of no one has the right to tell anyone else how to live their lives. It's the one verse that both sinners and carnal Christians have memorized. But that is not a correct interpretation of these verses. How do I know? In Romans 16, 17, Paul instructs the early church to mark those people who cause division. And in Galatians 1.80 he writes, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. Even later on in this very chapter about judging in chapter 7, Jesus says this, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears forth good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. So let me ask you, how do you know if a person is a false prophet? It's simple. You listen to their teaching, and then you judge it against the word of God. Likewise, how do I know if fruit is good or bad? I can look at it, or I can taste it, and then I will judge it according to how it looks or tastes. And yet Jesus commands us not to judge. So what does the word judge mean in this context? If you ever ask a question about what a word means, you're actually asking a question about what is called its semantic or its lexical range. That's what the scholars call it. For instance, when you look up a word in the dictionary, it will often give you more than one definition, right? Why? Because many words have a range of meaning somewhat different depending upon their usage. Because the word can be used a little bit differently depending on the context. For example, the word engagement has multiple meanings. Armies can be engaged attempting to kill one another. Gears can be engaged to drive one another. And couples can be engaged committed to love one another. So what does the word judge mean? At the one end of the lexical range, judge simply means to evaluate, as, I, as in, I didn't judge that distance very well. It just means to evaluate or to discern. Now, to evaluate means to say this is good rather than bad, or this is right rather than wrong, or this is better rather than worse. It just means to make an evaluation. Is that what Jesus is forbidding? Is he saying, don't ever say to anybody, you're wrong. Never criticize anyone. Don't say anything about their beliefs or behavior because that's judging. Today, that's what a lot of people in our culture think that means. 
In fact, so often we are told don't judge, meaning you don't have the right to tell someone their behavior is immoral or wrong. You don't tell people their beliefs are wrong or bad or anything. No, no. That's judging. And so, if I insist you refer to me by a different gender, or if I want to fornicate up and down the street, or if I want to marry my St. Bernard, you don't have the right to say that God calls that wrong. Is that what Jesus means? Does he mean don't ever evaluate and don't ever criticize? No, he can't mean that. First of all, by the way, the way that Americans think of judging doesn't even work. Why? Because when you say you should never negatively evaluate behavior, you should never tell people that they are wrong, at that very moment, you're telling the person that they're wrong for judging negative behavior, which means you're doing the very thing you said they're not supposed to do. And so we see this doesn't even work in real life. So what's the other end of the range of the word judge? What else can the word judge mean? Well, in the Old Testament, it says that God will return to judge the earth. What does that mean? Well, when he comes back to judge the earth, he's coming to punish. He's coming to exclude. He's coming to condemn. He's actually coming to destroy evil. Now, you realize you can judge in the sense of criticize. You can judge in the sense of evaluate, but you can't judge in the sense of condemning. What's the difference? What's well, mainly attitude? In Romans 14:10, 14, 14, Paul says, "Why do you judge your brother?" Then immediately after that, he says, "Why do you look down on him?" I'll put it this way: When you criticize, are you trying to get the relationship back? Are you trying to say, I want you to see this because I care about you and I want you to understand this? In other words, are you coming humbly and seeking to strengthen or maintain the relationship? Or are you criticizing to punish? Are you criticizing to cause pain? Are you criticizing just to make the person feel bad? The Greek phrase rendered do not judge there in Matthew 7 is in the present continuous sense. In that tense, it means do not be continually engaged in judging anyone from a critical and a hypocritical standpoint. Now, that is quite different from the meaning usually assigned to the phrase, don't judge anyone or anything. The Greek word translated judger means to judge to the place of condemnation. It's when you're in someone's face, so to speak, pointing your finger at them and condemning them. That's the lexical reins. Jesus doesn't mean that you shouldn't criticize. He can't mean that. What he means is you shouldn't judge in the sense of condemning or punishing another person. You shouldn't judge in the sense of haughtiness, condensation, and the desire to just get rid of that person. Jesus says we must never treat people like that. So we have a balance here, do we not? The balance is not cowardice, like you don't tell the truth. But on the other hand, you must speak the truth in love. There must be a humility. There must be a respect. And there must be a desire to strengthen and maintain that relationship and not to destroy it. You say, okay, that's nice. 
That's kind of a principle, almost an abstraction. But how does that work in actual relationships? Look at verse 2, for in it we are given a solemn warning. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now this verse has also been misapplied. The manner in which I judge is the way that I will be judged. Now is this the manner in which I will be judged by God? No. All my sins have been dealt with and judged on the cross of Calvary. Then who's going to judge me? People will. And the Lord may allow them to if we have been ultra-critical and judgmental. If I'm critical of others, pointing out the dirt on their feet with no intention of restoring, healing, or helping, I'm going to find that same kind of judgment hurled back at me. Speaking of judging, in the first chapter of the book of Judges, the men of Judah said to the men of Simeon, there's a camp of the Canaanites over in the valley. Let's go take them on. And after beating the Canaanites soundly, the Israelites captured Adonai Bezek, the Canaanite king. And they then chopped off his thumbs and his big toes. Now, why did they do that? Adonai Bezek himself gave the answer when he said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes that I cut off used to gather up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Do you know what that teaches me? If you chop up someone, or if you cut down someone, watch out. Jesus says the way that you judge is the way that you will be judged. Now what's the remedy to that so that we ensure that we don't judge the wrong way? Look at verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. To really understand verse 1, we need to look at this fascinating, famous metaphor that Jesus gives us in verses 3 through 5. I'll read it again. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, but do not notice the plank that is in your own eye? You hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. There's so much in this. First of all, what is the metaphor getting across? When you have a splinter or something in your eye, it destroys your ability to see clearly out of that eye. I mean, you're constantly blinking, your eyes are watering, you can't see, it's awful. It feels terrible. But I ask you, what is that a metaphor for spiritually? When you have a sin in your soul, a besetting fault, when you have something lodged in your soul, it destroys your ability to really see. For example, guys, let's say some woman really hurts you in the past. And now you're kind of bitter. And what you can't see, but other people might be able to see, is you're bitter against women in general. You have a distorted view of them. And your relationships with them are thereby distorted. 
Somebody needs to put you right and tell you about it. Or maybe you have such an over-desire to be successful that you can't see what that is doing to your family through your overwork. Listen, there can be so many besetting flaws, inordinate desires, fears, anxieties, resentments, and grudges from the past, and they can lodge themselves in our soul the way a splinter gets in your eye, and as a result, it can distort our ability to see clearly. Now, what do you do when that happens? Do you know what you need? You need someone to help you. He says if you have something in your eye, you need someone to help you to get it out. You say, wait a minute, why can't you just go to a mirror and remove it yourself? Or remember the air in which Jesus was speaking. A mirror. If you were really wealthy, you might have a mirror, but most people didn't have mirrors. Now, it didn't mean that nobody knew what they looked like, because you could see your reflection in glazed surfaces and in the water, but not well enough to get a splinter out. So Jesus is right in saying that if you get something in your eye so that it makes it impossible to see, and so you're in a certain amount of pain, you have to have somebody to come in and to help you to get it out. Are you beginning to realize what's going on here? You do need others. We do need people to come to us and tell us the truth, to show us when we're not seeing things straight, and to show us things that have lodged in our souls that we are unaware of. We need that. We need evaluation. We need people to come and talk to us. But we need people to tell us our flaws the way a person gets a speck out of their eye. Well, how do you do that? Very carefully. If you say to someone, hey, I've got something in my eye, and that person just sort of lunges at you with a hammer and a screwdriver, you're going to quickly back away. In fact, if somebody even comes with a pair of tweezers, you'd say, how about we tie a tissue instead? And then only gently and slowly. That's the metaphor. Jesus is using for how we're supposed to tell each other about our faults. Isn't that something? We need people to come and help us. Why? Because everyone in this room, from time to time, is going to have a speck in their eyes. We have to tell people around us, we have to let people around us tell us what's wrong with us. And we have to give them the license to do that. Yet it must be so winsome, so careful, and so exquisitely gentle. Now Jesus pushes the envelope a little bit further on the metaphor. And he shows us how not to go about it. What he says is, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, but you don't pay any attention to the plank that is in your own eye? Now, this is where it gets comical. Here Jesus is talking about a guy who's coming to try, you, try to help you get the splinter out of your eye. And he has this two-by-four protruding out of his own eye. It's really kind of silly, except maybe not. What is he talking about? First of all, he's talking about people who are more aware of other people's flaws than they are of their own flaws. One Sunday afternoon, a cranky grandfather was visiting his family, 
As he lay down to take a nap, his grandson decided to have a little fun by putting Limburger cheese on his grandfather's mustache. Soon, Grandpa awoke with a snort and charged out of the bedroom, saying, This room stinks. Through the house he went, finding every room smelling the same. Desperately, he made his way outside and then exclaimed, The whole world stinks. That's how we can be if we are not careful. And I find this fascinating because the word Jesus used to imply that the speck of the splinter that I see in my brother's eye is very often the exact same material as the beam in my own eye, only smaller in dimension, as they both originate from the same root word. Maybe that's why I can spot certain sins in other people. They're my sins. Very often, whatever sins you struggle with personally are the sins you will point out most readily in other people. Now, David found this to be true. The prophet Nathan came to him and said, David, we have a problem. There was a rich man who had all sorts of sheep. Someone came in to visit him, and instead of going out to his own herd and taking a sheep, the man went to his neighbor, who was very poor, grabbed his one and only lamb, and then killed it to serve as guest. Outraged, David said, what? The man who has done this thing shall surely die. Now keep in mind, in the Old Testament law, it never prescribed death as the penalty for that kind of transgression. Yet with blood vessels bursting and finger pointing, David said, kill him. Then Nathan said, David, you are that man. It's you. You have many wives and concubines, yet you stole Uriah's wife Bathsheba, and you took her into your house. You are the man. Why was David so eager to mete out excessive judgment? I think it's because we're always harshest with the sin of others that also can lurk in our own heart. So Jesus is saying, if you see splinters in others, realize it's very often a splinter off of the beam that is in your own eye. Now, Jesus is not saying we shouldn't help the brother who has a splinter in their eye. Instead, he is saying, make sure you recognize and deal with the beam that is in your own eye first. In Psalm 51, David prayed, Create in me a clean heart, O God, then I will teach transgressors your way what was David saying once you deal with me Lord my attitude will be entirely different as I deal with others so to finish up this morning there is a need to judge but not to the place of condemnation rather we are to judge for identification and then for restoration I'm to love people enough that when I see them erring, I'm to say to them lovingly, because I care about you, I want you to know that, that you're going in the wrong direction. So if you are a Christian, to be discerning, sensitive, and kind friends, we are called to be, in a sense, all of us, shepherds. We are called to be the people who actually create a context in which people can see the beauty of Christ. So according to scripture, to do that, I must make some judgments for identification. But I'm never to have an attitude of condemnation. How do I know if I'm condemning people? If I'm not willing to partake in the restoration, 
then I am probably practicing condemnation. When Jesus walked into the upper room where his disciples were sitting, he noticed that they all had dirty feet. Now, did he point his finger and say, you guys, why don't you wash your stinky feet? It's a mess up here. No, John 13 says he rose from supper, girded himself with a towel, and then he began to wash their feet. So too. I do not believe I have the right to point out someone else's dirty feet unless I'm willing to kneel down myself and wash them. If you are a Christian, Jesus is calling you in this very, very short passage to be shepherds. Now there's a huge balance, I hope we see, between judging and condemning. I guess I better say between truth and tears. What's the balance? As verse 24 said, don't judge by appearance only. Be kind. Be very, very, very humble and respectful and never condemning. God help us all. And Father, we do pray. We want to be judgmental people, Lord. We want to judge according to your word and in the right spirit. And I pray, Father, that you would heal relationships even in this room. And Lord, anyone, Lord, who's watching this who needs to do business with you about this sort of thing, oh God, your Holy Spirit can convict them even in that. And so, Lord, let us be the kind of people that you want us to be, judgmental but loving. We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. Being the first